Hey, what's up guys and welcome into episode 11 of the Landscape Photography Show. Super pumped about this episode today because we have one of my good photography friends, Jason Hatfield, on the show today. And there's a lot to take away from this episode. Number one, we talk about plenty of ways that we as photographers can work towards making locations more friendly to visitors. And that's not saying that like everybody's going into these places and wrecking them and ruining them and and causing a lot of problems in these places that we go to all the time to take photos but it's a way of thinking about how do we work on the problem how do we try to fix the problem that is occurring that's the reason that so many stories right now are getting written about what is going on in some of these most popular landscape photography locations. But I think one of the most interesting things in this episode to me was the thought processes behind drone regulations. And we talk a lot about the recent drone regulations from 2019 from Canada about some of the new ways and laws and rules that go around flying your drones that have actually caused a lot of Canadian droners to sell their drones and not shoot from the sky anymore. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Jason Hatfield joins us on the podcast today. Jason, we've talked a few times in the past, actually, and we've actually done you know a small workshop together and spent some time in the Tetons. You just started like travel life. How is that going? And what was the decision like for you to jump into that? Yeah, it's uh, going pretty good so far. I'm just over a month into it uh, full time with my wife, uh, Megan, and I was doing it kind of over the summer down in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think it's kind of freeing to, to, to be out of the house and, you know, just living full time as opposed to, you know, half the time living in the back of my forerunner, which as you imagine, isn't super spacious. <laughs> so yeah, it's cool. We're, um, I'd say it was a number of different motivations. One was to go debt-free. And so part of that was we bought a home six years ago in Denver and then things kind of worked out with selling it now, um, allowed us to purchase the truck and the trailer and, and pay off some other debt and uh, plan to do this for probably two to five years before we find some land somewhere. We have some ideas. We've already kind of looked around and either find a small cabin or build something small and efficient. Cause part of this also um, being global, you know, being environmentally friendly, it, it, at least a little bit more, you know, lessening our, our carbon footprint by, you know, I've already been tracking that kind of stuff. Like, you know, what's our propane usage, fuel usage compared to, you know, me traveling out from Denver a lot and then, you know, heating and cooling and electricity and a whole home. But it's been a, you know, variety of factors looking at that to see, you know, how I can be a little bit less impactful. What's debt-free life like compared to what you were? Um, we were never in huge debt. It was mostly just like a mortgage and a couple, you know, there's small things. Like I had one student loan left and um, we didn't have any car payments at the moment, but just, you know, a few other things. So it's it's definitely, you know, nice to not have that mortgage, that big 
what we considered a big mortgage to worry about. Um, so I definitely, you know, I like that. Obviously, my wife had to leave her job, so there's a little bit less money coming in, but we've got, you know, other plans and work for that. And she's probably going to do travel work every, you know, once a year, twice a year kind of thing. So I think overall it'll be a much better experience to not be worrying about, you know, the typical person of vehicle and mortgage and all the other fun toys. Yeah, I know when my wife and I finally went debt free, it was like, it was almost like we could breathe again and not have to worry about, okay, we got a mortgage this month, you know, can I take the trip to X location or, you know, can I get this new camera bag that I need or my lens broke? Can I make the payment on that? Is that, do you kind of get the same feeling? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It's, and you know, it's, it's money will still be, you know, being a photographer is something that I always worry about and especially you know, right. with, with gear and equipment and travel costs. I mean, cause I can't say this is a, a cheap lifestyle, but it's definitely a cheaper lifestyle than we were living. Um, and yeah, to just be able to like pay for things outright that we've needed, um, you know, has been kind of nice. We did, we did treat ourselves a little bit. We, um, my mountain bike was 15 years old and hers was like 10 years old and they were pretty, you know, out of date and just heavy and not great. And so we both got new mountain bikes and it's a world of a difference. Uh, who's more well-known right now, you or your dog? <laughs> I mean, I have, I have a uh, more of the social media likes, I think, but you know, to be fair, <laughs> I I'm, you know, 34 years old and he's like a year and a half. So if you, if you go based on, you know, how much fame and the amount of, you know, how long you've lived, then he's definitely got me beat. <laughs> Yeah, his stats are, are like climbing compared to his lifespan right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had to take him into the vet um, the other day just because he was, we were out for a run and he went a little crazy and slid and cut himself. And, you know, every time he goes to the vet, like, oh, he's just the sweetest. Oh, he's so handsome. They just like, you know, shower him with love. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, don't, don't build up his ego too much there. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of dog is it again? It's an Australian Shepherd, um, which was the same breed as my last one. She was just mixed with something called Kelpie. So that's why they have kind of a different coloring. Gotcha. Now, over the last couple of years, would you say your style in photography has shifted a little bit? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'd, I'd still say my landscapes are, are still my what kind of the way I, I shoot them and process them is still, um, I guess relatively unchanged. It's probably more refined. Um, but then I, I have started to look for, I guess, more unique and different shots and I've started to put more of an environmental theme into my work. So I, that's probably influenced my style a little bit. You know, I've seen a lot more difference in your perspectives and mainly you shoot a lot more like bird's eye view perspective now that you uh, have kind of made a name for yourself in the drone industry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about that, but yeah, cause I, I picked up um, like the first DJI Phantom one back in uh, 2012 or 13. And that's when you had to like build your own gimbal and slap a GoPro on. And so I did, I did that for a couple of years and finally had my drone killed in, in Iceland. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm out of this for a little while. And then they got better. And so I got a Phantom four pro a couple of years ago. I wanted that bigger one inch sensor and yeah, it's really opened up my photography and especially my, my video work, the type of stuff I remember I was just doing, you know, like time-lapse films before. Now that I can include aerials, it's 
just completely changed it. What's that been like for your workflow? You know, I think you've done a few different videos now, right? Yeah. Um, I think I've got like five like short films and these are all kind of artistic, you know, there's no storyline, there's no, you know, plot or anything. It's just more about, you know, kind of a, a visual feast, something to, to watch and relax to. Is that something that, that you had to shift your workflow for? Because are you going out with the drone just to do that? Are you flying the drone while also getting photos of a location and doing the same thing? So it's a mix. Um, sometimes it's strictly just, uh, the drone. Like if I, you know, know the conditions are better for the drone than they are for taking stills then, or there's a specific shot I want. That's definitely the case too. Like where I'm like, okay, I know I want top down aerials of this. And there's ones that I've had in my mind for, you know, years. And so I go there with the drone, but other times, yeah, especially when things are blowing up with color, I'll be sitting there shooting the camera, then, you know, throwing the drone up real quick, filming what I wanted to film of it, you know, get a couple shots that I wanted with, cause you know, with the drone, you can just get such a different perspective. Um, and then going back to the stills and kind of just, you know, probably managing too much at once. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> now when you're scouting locations, how is that different from bird's eye view? Are you using different tools to get those perspectives? Uh, so that's another thing where it's a kind of a combination. So, I mean, I've been doing the, the landscape thing, I don't know, like 12, 10 years, something like that now in between there. And some places I've just always kind of like, you know, having viewed them from the ground so many times, it's like, you know, I know this would look amazing from the top and I don't really want to like name drop locations and send people there, but, uh, it's just, you know, typically features that are within public lands. A good example is this lake in, uh, deep in the mountains of Colorado. And I've been visiting it for a long time, always seeing what it looked like. Um, and you could see there was a real deep lake and had some really cool, uh, textures to it. And finally I had the drone went up there and it was even more incredible than I thought it would be. But then other times, yeah, I'm pulling up Google earth. Uh, I also use a program called Gaia GPS and I use those in a combination of ways along with air map to make sure one, I'm flying, you know, legally. And then, you know, two, to see if it's worth trying to get up there. There's some spots where it's like, okay, I know I couldn't even off trail hike there, but I can get the drone up to it and get a view. Do you see still photography and, and aerial photography and, and even aerial videos and, and kind of mixing that with time-lapse like you've been doing are, is all of that starting to blend into one category? Uh, I'd say in social media, definitely. Like you look at Instagram, um, that's, it's just kind of all interchangeable. And um, obviously you have people who specialize and focus on, you know, strictly top-down aerials or strictly landscapes. And like I said, landscapes are still my primary thing, but I, don't know, I guess I'm just, I'm the type that I get maybe a little um, too many, you know, too many hobbies. And so I get too many interests. And so for me, this works great because I can just kind of work around and shoot what works, you know, depending on the conditions. Do you find it more pleasing for you as a photographer to be able to kind of reach into those different categories and, and basically do what you want to do when you go out and shoot? Uh, creative, I'd, you know, creatively, I definitely would say yes. Uh, good examples are Alaska. It's, there's a lot of views that you just couldn't get otherwise without that drone. And there's just, you know, to be no way to get a perspective on a specific type of glacier or, you know, a certain view. And, to open that up to not have to pay, 
you know, hundreds or more dollars to use a helicopter. Um, and then, you know, the helicopter being more impactful on the environment and on the audio environment, it's, you know, kind of nice to have that capability. You mentioned legally flying your drone, and I don't know if you saw all the news that came out a few months ago in Canada about their new drone regulations and how strict that they are. Um, what are thoughts on legally flying your drone and flying your drone safely? Uh, just real quick, well, I didn't actually see that. I had heard about it, but I was too busy with the uh, transition to travel life. So what's what's their new regulation? Yeah, I'll just rattle off a few. Um, and if I, I kind of, it's been a few months now. So if I mix two together, forgive me, but... So in Canada, they made new regulations on drone flight about um, legally flying your drone in public space or even private space. Number one, you have to get a certificate of flight by taking a course that costs a significant amount of money and takes up a lot of time. Uh, I believe you have to pass basically like something very similar to a pilot's license, uh, being able to know different lingos and verbiage for flight patterns or wind speeds, different things like that. Um, you have to set up a perimeter for your drone. I believe you have to get authorization beforehand from a takeoff location. Uh, you have to be in constant contact with the closest uh, air traffic control tower. I think those are basically the basics of it, but you, you kind of have to be a pilot overall to be able to legally fly your drone in Canada. And a lot of photographers that I follow or, or read about or, or follow their blogs wrote about just overall selling their drones because of these new limitations on the ability to, to be able to fly legally and I think that's the right path to take selling your drone rather than illegally flying it and getting in flight paths and trying to work around the rules. But is there an, is there an imminent like foreshadowing in the United States for something like that? That's yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that sounds a little draconian to me. Um, I would agree with some of them. Like I, in the U S I, I feel like the uh, pilot's license, the remote pilot license is, you know, worthwhile. And I mean, honestly, should probably be required of everyone just because of how many illegal drone flights I catch. Uh, a good example being like the Maroon Bells, which is a no-fly zone. And, you know, I've had mm -hmm. multiple people having to tell them like, no, here's, you know, I try to be real nice about it. And like, you know, here's some cool places you can fly nearby. And, you know, I had to threaten to call the ranger on somebody because they uh, just, they're just like, well, how much is the ticket? I don't care, essentially. But, yeah, that, that in Canada sounds a little a little much, but I would agree with some. And I mean, for me, flying legally, you know, there's there's certain gray areas, but I try to stay in the kind of the black and white for the most part. And one of that is I use Gaia GPS to identify wilderness zones. Now, I think AirMap finally added that into their app. Um, and the it's the FAA's app is before you fly. I don't know if they put it in theirs, but having that wilderness boundary on a map is really helpful because a lot of the times I'm flying and national forest or blm and it's typically close to wilderness and i want to make sure that uh, i don't fly into it the way the rule reads is you're requested not to fly 2,000 feet or lower you know in a wilderness area and you know notice that verbiage requested 
and you also can't take off for land. So, but, you know, technically you could take off just outside the wilderness and fly it in there because you're requested not to. I don't do that. You know, I don't want to harass wildlife, but you think about good examples, me, you know, backpacking in like the Indian peaks wilderness or up in the wind river range. And there's constantly aircraft, you know, single engine planes that are flying well below that 2000 feet. So, you know, they're not following that rule either. So I can understand why people might, uh, buck that a little bit, but when it comes to national parks, like, again, that's another thing where you could fly in and they could get you on something else, which is like disturbing a wildlife corridor or similar. Um, but I don't think you should do that at all. And I don't, you know, I don't fly in national parks. They're not giving permits to anybody. And it seems like every week I'm finding somebody on social media who's flown their drone in a national park and like, well, I didn't know I was, wasn't supposed to do that when I feel like that's pretty common knowledge at this point. Should there be a higher patrol of people posting photos like that on social media by the national park system? Well, I mean, I definitely wish like I I've, I've sent information to the NPS investigative services and um, they've actually followed up with some, it can take a while. Um, You know, I know some people have been fine. Some people have had other consequences, but do I wish there was more? Yeah. I mean, I think that's more of a budgetary thing than anything else, but you know, there's so many other amazing places to fly. I'm okay with, you know, giving up the national parks. It's, you know, it, it's, it's only a very small fraction of our public lands. Now, places like Yellowstone, I think it would be incredible to get some aerials of some of those thermal features, but it's also one of the largest unfragmented ecosystems in North America, uh, at least in the U.S. And I feel like, yeah, you're flying a lot of drones, just like if you were flying a lot of single engine planes or helicopters, that would be pretty disturbing. Real quick, guys, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor of the show, and that's Visual Wilderness. Visual Wilderness is a website where you can go and find tons of resources to improve your landscape photography, articles, tutorials, courses you can purchase. You can actually become a monthly subscriber and get access to all of those things when you go to visualwilderness.com. You can go to today's show notes to find all of the links to what you can get with Visual Wilderness, plus the discount code that I'm about to talk about and refer to. You can go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Jason and find all these links of the show notes and what you can get with Visual Wilderness. Also, all of my courses that I've contributed to visualwilderness.com are for sale for a limited time right now when you use the code David33 during checkout. Again, go to davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Jason and find those codes. Again, 33% off for a limited time right now when you use David33 during checkout. You know, you and me have been, like I said earlier, we've shot in the Tetons together and we've seen some pretty egregious actions by people uh, in national parks. What, what steps can be taken for people to respect the places that they're going to shoot? And, and even in response to people, you know, we're talking about drone regulations and, and staying out of the gray areas or you know, following the rules of the parks that seem to be pretty common sense. But even in response to people who are like, 
you know, I'm not going to get caught. I'm not trying to do anything wrong here. I just want this one shot that I'm going to come fly back. Yeah. And that's, that's a big problem. And there's definitely, there's people, um, you know, that that have been pretty forthright about like, they're, you know, if they're not going to get caught, they're just going to do it. That's their view. Like what harm am I, am I causing? And again, I can see their side of it, but there is a real wildlife concern and a disturbance concern. But, you know, if the park service maybe did occasionally issue a permit for, you know, certain areas that they knew were, you know, low threat, then maybe that would appease people enough. But I think you're always going to have that, you know, group of people, just like, you know, I caught people drove onto the lakeshore of Maroon Lake there, the Maroon Bells and, and camped there, you know, that obviously was very much something they weren't supposed to do. And, you know, driving a vehicle on a trail to begin with. And then, you know, I tried to go get a ranger or to get the sheriff or somebody to come out and, and they were gone by the time I was able to get somebody there 12 hours later. So I mean, one of it is we just need to fund our public lands more. We need more employees. And I don't say we need, you know, rangers out there patrolling every little thing, but things like this, which are definitely impactful. I wish there was a way that, you know, either we could communicate with the rangers easier um, and get it resolved because, you know, that's hard to do or if they could just have more patrols. Yeah, I was going to say budget and, you know, manpower for sure. You know, you go into Death Valley National Park, which is the largest national park uh, in the United States, and and you get in there and, you know, you maybe see like one ranger a day, and that's around close to the main station of the park. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing is like they have so much to patrol and I think that's where it puts a responsibility on us to also, you know, when we see something to, to try and, you know, calmly say something to people about, Hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Now I've definitely had some people overreact to, to that still even. So there's a risk involved and depends if you're alone and what kind of situation you're in, you know, when it's a group of, you know, young, you know, I don't know a group of people, I should say. And, you know, it's just you by yourself. It's kind of hard to tell them, Hey, don't do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, an example like Point Reyes uh, National Seashore, I was there a couple years ago and I had my drone with me on this trip and I knew that was an area I couldn't fly because it's administered by the NPS. And I came up to that famous you know tree tunnel and I was um, just setting up to do some lightning shots later that day. And this guy comes and he's from England and he's got his drone. I see it in his hand and I calmly explain to him, Hey, you can't fly this here. This is why and he's like, oh, okay. I won't do it. And I walk back to my car and what does he do? Pops out the drone and flies it because he wanted to get that shot. And, and there's, and I tried to get a hold of a ranger. No luck. You know, I, I called the number, no answer. You know, it's one of those things where it's where you, you catch it, but there's, there's never any consequences or the consequences are very few and far between. And then people tend to see a reward from that. They see that, hey, I got away with this and look at all these likes I got or look at this, you know, big account that featured me or did this. So there's this reinforcement system that like, hey, if you can get away with it and do it. Should we be approaching people like different? I mean, it sounds like you did the right thing in that situation. Should we be approaching people in the field differently? Like I'm just trying to brainstorm live here. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people who obviously it's when I used to work um, in retail, if, you know, the more aggressive the person is, the more results they tend to get, which, you know, it shouldn't be that way. And, 
I think these are typically those kind of folks. And so it's hard to, to come at them that way because they're not going to respond to aggression. They're not going to respond to you, you know, like, hey, you better stop doing that. But, you know, also calmly explaining it to them and trying to be nice about it and offering alternatives doesn't seem to work for a number of those folks either. And, you know, the only way I think that's, you know, is going to change is, you know, more of those people hopefully changing and then, you know, actual consequences. And I think that should include you know, bans from the park systems, you know, or this guy who was here internationally, you know, and he could have a consequence, you know, on a return trip to our national park systems, a five-year ban, you know, and even like those, uh, those guys from Canada that came down into Yellowstone, I think they only ended up, I mean, they had a fine, but I can't remember their, their ban wasn't super long. Um, but you know, you get into that's where it's more, you know, legal stuff that I don't completely understand. Are you seeing this as a growing, you spend more time in national parks than I do. Are you seeing this as a, as a growing problem or something that's slowly tilting the other way of people acting more responsibly? Um, I wouldn't say it's gotten more responsible yet. I'd say that maybe it hasn't been growing as quickly or maybe there's been a little bit of a stall in that, but there's definitely some, I mean, there's some major Instagram accounts who have been called out and caught multiple times and they still continue to you know go out and do these illegal type of shots even ones that aren't illegal uh there's this one photographer that was i think it was in norway and he was harassing reindeer real close with the drone um and he's got a you know a huge huge following and he you know he got called out for that and then you know months later posting something else that's just as bad there's that one fpv drone guy who goes out there and you know was chasing monkeys and rhinos and like i said there's always going to be those people but um, as far as general drone use in the national parks, I wouldn't say that's any worse than it used to be or in the past few years, but I, um, I don't know if it's necessarily gotten that much better. Yeah. I think overall, like when those situations come up, I think we as photographers need to take the opportunity to educate somebody about the situation, just like a personal story here. I was talking to my friend who he's not a photographer. He has a drone. He, he enjoys flying. He enjoys taking aerial photographs, which is fantastic. We've, you know, gone out together before and, and, and done some work together and just messed around. But he was asking me, you know, what, what's the next time you're going to go into the Smokies? I'd love to go camping. Uh, you know, I'm really interested in getting more into photography. We'll take our drones. I was like, well, you know, drones aren't really allowed in the national park system. Uh, we can't fly drones in the Smokies. And he said, you can't, or like you're technically not supposed to. And while that seems like kind of, you know, edging photographers close to the point of being like, oh, okay. Yeah. I see your point there. Let's go do it. I think we really need to take on the responsibility of standing our ground instead of giving in in that situation to an opportunity of education of the public of, you know, why this shouldn't be tolerated or, you know, why this shouldn't blah, 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 and, and not to do it in an aggressive way, but to calmly explain. And he got it afterwards. He was like, Oh, okay, I get it. Um, and he didn't want to risk the, I, I don't know even what the fine is now anymore, but I think there are more opportunities like that starting to show up with the public. Yeah. And that's, um, 
I guess on the on the case of not knowing that, that's where that you know if if they required a license or at least an amateur license, where okay, these are all the regulations you have to take this you know test, whether it's online, you know, open book, whatever, and that way they can you know if you've at least you know you've gotten your license, you verified that you know you agree to all these things, and then you you break that, well then you know they you can't be like well I didn't know you can't try and pull that excuse you know everybody that's flying a drone has you know has a license therefore knows they can't fly in a national park you know simple things like that but um i think there are yeah there are more opportunities present i think there's a lot more online education the uh public lands hates you uh instagram account mm-hmm. does a pretty good job of calling people out and trying to be you know positive about in the beginning um with people who are receptive to you know learning why what you know why what they did was wrong and why they shouldn't do it so i think there is maybe more of that available and happening yeah that was one of the accounts that that when i started to follow it at the beginning i was a little worried about how they were going to go about calling people out and and you know telling them they shouldn't do that but they've actually done a really good job being firm and telling them why they should not do whatever they're doing and some people have responded positively some people not yeah and when it comes to that like the faa rules too is like i think yeah some of them are maybe a little overzealous and things you know where people are like i'm not i'm expecting you to guess more respect the land but you know if you're flying in the mountains trying to stay under 400 feet above ground level and you know the ground level is constantly changing on you i'm not expecting that to happen i'm what i'm expecting is for you to stay below you know typical flight decks that means not getting over top of a mountain and then going, you know, 2000 feet up into the air. But if you're over a valley, you know, at say 800 feet that, you know, obviously no aircraft is flying through, you're keeping alert. And it's because you're going from one side of the valley to the other. I'm, you know, whatever that's, that, that to me isn't the bigger concern. The bigger concern is when you're flying in places where it's disruptive. And, and I can understand too, with the people in, you know, especially in cities are really, dense you know densely populated areas like the bay area it's kind of frustrating to have a drone because your opportunities are a lot more limited about where you can fly and where you know me being out of colorado there's so much national forest and even some blm to fly in and so it makes it really easy i've you know when i've been on the coast before like the oregon coast if you actually look at the regulations and the marine protections you're not supposed to fly over um, certain types of structures and you know sea stacks and things like that and so it actually really limits where you can fly but a lot of people they they just pop out their drone and fly they don't actually you know look into that um so i guess just accounts like that calling out people and saying here's what you know why you did what was wrong you know there's these um, birds that nest on these sea stacks and you know you would be disrupting them that might make the difference but there always again will be a few people that just don't care they do everything for the show are, are we ever going to get to a point where we're not having this conversation anymore (laughs) um i think the only way we could see that is much stricter control from the faa um and a lot stricter control you know of the drone regulation but i don't know that we need that or want that i just you know it'll always be just like any law or regulation there'll always be the few that that break it and it's and it comes to our public lands it can be kind of heartbreaking to see the damage come you know to, to certain things and features that we love and I think that's hopefully we can limit that at least. Are there steps that you think should be taken? Um, yeah, like I said before, I think you know, everybody should have some sort of a license, just as opposed to being able to go to a store, buy a drone, and, and you know throw it up into the sky. 
uh, that's that's dangerous for a lot of a lot of different reasons, not just you know public lands. Um, so yeah, some sort of basic education requirement, I think, would be the most important step we could take. What do you have coming up in in photography? Not only the rest of this year, but also getting into next year. Um, so right now I'm doing fall colors in Colorado, and uh, weather's not too great, but finding some interesting stuff to shoot. I'm up uh, in Silverton right now, and uh, just came down here yesterday to shoot some alpine tundra that's looking like Alaska. So that's pretty cool. And then after this, I've got a photo shoot possibly up near Grand Junction and then heading out to the desert for a few weeks. And so I'll be down in Southern Utah, Northern Arizona, primarily places like Vermilion Cliffs and Grand Staircase or where I like to spend a lot of my time. And I'm, you know, having Glacier, my dog, uh, I don't tend to go into the national parks as much. Um, it just kind of depends what I'm doing. Uh, but the nice thing about places like Grand Staircase is you can have your dog in most places. And then after that, I will come back to Colorado for a little bit and then head to where my parents live in Ohio. And we're going to drop off the trailer and my dog. And we're going to go to New Zealand and visit a friend there for a few weeks and then do a, maybe a month or two in Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, uh, Laos, Vietnam, Myanmar, and uh, kind of check out some stuff on a bigger trip. Well, all of that sounds incredible. Um <laughs> I know why you don't share photo locations and, and we kind of share a lot of the same thoughts, but I did want to give you the opportunity if anybody's listening and you know, they hear you or see you post on social media and not sharing a location, let them know why you do not. I guess I'd say it's, it's going to vary on the place, a popular known place like Maroon Bells. I have no problem sharing that it's, it's well known. It's got a fairly big infrastructure system. It has a bus shuttle system. Is it way more popular than when I first came out here? Yeah, of course. Um, but there, unfortunately, there's nothing I can do about that. Um, but when it comes to lesser known, most importantly, like off-trail locations, I'm pretty reluctant to share those just you know, on social media um, because there's a lot of impact people can have with illegal fires, you know, off-roading when they're not supposed to, not watching out for vegetation. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but just walking around today through the Alpine tundra, even though this stuff's pretty much dead and I'm, it's not like stepping on the wildflowers where I'm you know, more impactful to this you know, reproductive life. I'm still like watching each step I'm taking. Cause I just don't want to alter the area of the scene too much, you know, for the next person, you know, just cause these areas are, are very fragile and, you know, leave no trace that gets thrown out a lot. And that's something that I believe a lot in. Um, but it's, it's something that we really have to take to heart now because when I started landscape photography, it was very much just like kind of a, a nerdy pursuit. It wasn't popular. It wasn't cool. It wasn't Instagram. It was a much, much smaller community. And, you know, I think it's awesome now that it's a big, huge community and of people that are all interested in what I've been interested in. And with that though, comes obviously a lot more people. So we just have to you know, be more careful. He's Jason Hatfield. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it.